second passage in Psalms today as well. Psalms 33, 4 through 9. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are in awe that just by your voice, you spoke everything that we know into existence. And as we sang just a little bit ago, we love to hear that voice. Uh, We're astonished that we can still hear that voice through your word, which you have left with us, and through servants like Jeff. And we ask that you open our hearts, open our ears, that we can hear what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Jace. How we doing? Oh, I think we know who got up and shoveled this morning, don't we? Some of you are like, what? What's that? I just drove right over it. For those of you who are new to Idaho Falls, welcome to winter. It is late. If you have your bulletin today, you can follow along with my message with this outline that's in your bulletin. That'll help you track with the passage and also track with where I'm going, hopefully. Hopefully that'll help you with that a little bit. Uh, We're going to start by giving a little bit of a recap today in our our series through David's life uh, by talking about, I'm going to recap 1 Samuel chapter 20 and 21, and then we're going to jump right into 22, because really 20 and 21 are the setup for what we're going to talk about today, okay? So in 1 Samuel 20, uh, David seeks refuge with his best pal, Jonathan. And fearing Saul's plot against him, uh, Jonathan Uh, denies knowledge of any plot, and David proposes a plan to just test Saul's intention. What does this guy intend? And uh, a conflict rises at a feast, uh, leading to a confrontation where Jonathan has to defend David on moral grounds, on grounds of justice, and just practical grounds, right? He has to challenge his father at the dinner table. And so the chapter ends with a secret covenant between David and Jonathan, this beautiful scene of them weeping together and and making a plan to know how it is that Saul intends to kill him. Because remember, up until this point, Saul has been very dubious. I mean, he's he's been very deceptive. He's been saying to David, no, 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 we're good. That's all in the past. Water under the bridge. And then he chucks another spear at his head, right? In chapter 21, David flees for his life and takes refuge at a place called Nob or Nob, uh, where the priesthood is located. So for some reason, the priesthood is, uh, part of the priesthood is located here in the land of Nob, and uh, there is a priest there named Ahimelech, right, or Ahimelech, and he greets uh, David But he wonders why he's by himself or why he doesn't have very many men with him. And so David basically lies. He concocts this story about being on a secret mission for the king, having brought only a small contingent of soldiers with him. David asks 
for the priest's resources, bread, weapons, anything that you have on hand that you could provide. And, and Ahimelech or Ahimelech uh, offers him consecrated bread with the proviso that David and his men have remained consecrated. That is, they haven't slept around with women in the towns as they've been traveling, and he assures them, we are consecrated. So what Ahimelech does is he gives him uh, what is called the bread of the presence. But this bread was supposed to be thrown out anyway because it has gone cold. It's a little stale. And so he, they were just replacing that bread with warm, fresh, hot bread at the table of the presence in the Holy of Holies before the Lord. And so he offers him that. Unfortunately, one of Saul's household slaves has been stationed there at Nob, a man named Doeg, Doeg the Edomite. Uh, Edom was just uh, southeast of Israel, and historically the Edomites were Israel's uh, enemies. And David asked for a sword, a weapon. Do you have anything on hand? I mean, what do you have? And it turns out the only weapon that he has on hand is Goliath's sword. And so the one David uh, used to decapitate the giant is sitting there. And so David urges uh, Ahimelech to give him this heirloom. I want this. Give it to me. And he then flees to the uh, Philistine city of Gath or Gat, uh, and just, which is just northeast of Gaza, where, where Gaza is today. I'm sure you've probably seen something about that on the news uh, lately. But just, uh, just northeast of Gaza and east of Ashkelon, those cities are there today. They're still there. Uh, King Achish of Gath recognizes David, and he calls him the king of the land. What is the king of the land doing here? Uh, he even knows the popular song, the pop tune that's been playing on the radio. Saul has only killed thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So this song must be memorable because people, even in Philistia, have heard it. And so fearing that King Achish uh, would execute him, David pretends to be mad, just barking mad. And the text says he acted like a crazy man around them, scratching and clawing at doors and walls and just dripping with drool, which, sound, which sounds super gross. And so we pick up the story in chapter 22, verse 1. So David has to flee from Gat. And so David left Gat and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his uh, father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, uh, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 uh, were with them, men were with them. And from there, David went to Mizpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab, underline that, because that becomes significant. And they stayed with him. The whole time David was in the stronghold, and then uh, the prophet Gad said to David, he said, uh, don't stay in the stronghold, leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Heret. And so we're going we're gonna to unpack the significance of some of these things. The text essentially gives us five scenes Five scenes that we have to unpack, but we're only going to get to two today because when I got to the second one, I just got so hung up on it, as you will see, that I couldn't get to the rest of them. We'll deal with the rest of them next week. So the first scene is a desperate gathering and a desperate request. Just a, a, a gathering of desperate people. 
and then a desperate request to the king of Moab. So, so David left Gat and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. Now, this cave will become very significant later on uh, in the story. We'll see why it becomes significant. And when David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined them there. So here you have David's whole family now who uh, clearly are beginning to feel threatened by Saul too. So they think, well, if he's out to kill David, maybe he'll use us as bait. And so we better go join um, our son and go join him there. And so in addition to every man who was desperate, notice uh, the riffraff, right, who have come to join David. Um, And so now David oddly requests that his family would be able to stay with the king of Moab. And this is significant because several battles, actually going all the way back to Moses, right, Uh, They had been fighting with the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Midianites. I mean, these people are just, and the Amalekites, these people are just sort of entrenched in this land, and they've been fighting with these people for a very long time. But, But in Saul's day, Saul particularly was a scourge on the Moabites. And so I don't personally understand why it is that he allows or he listens to David and grants this request. Can't you imagine that David is terrified, actually? Like inside, he's thinking the king of Moab is going to kill my family. What if, what if I come back and my family's heads are cut off, right? So, so he's got to be thinking this. Later on in the story in 2 Samuel chapter 8, uh, David comes back and he mercifully spares all the children of Moab. So he is the king of a consolidated kingdom and he comes back to the land of Moab and he has every one of the males laid down on the ground. They all lay face down. He has two cords. And if you are the length of two cords, you die today. But if you're only the length of one, you're spared. In other words, he spares the male children. So David, understand, do not have this picture in your mind of David sitting around, playing a little harp, and compose, just composing music as a worship leader. He is a man of war. This is a battle-hardened warrior. So, so we don't really know why it is that the king of Moab grants this request. But remember, David is, is part Moabite. Who is his great-grandmother? Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. So uh, David's got a little Moabite in him. And so we don't really know why he grants this request, but clearly um, David feels okay with leaving his family there. And what does that say about Saul? that he feels more comfortable leaving his family, his mom and dad and his brothers and sisters, with the king of Moab than in the king of Judah, the king of Israel, with the king of Israel. And so um, our observation from this particular part of the text today is that God sovereignly brings David a coalition of oddballs and nonconformists to accomplish his will. I think this is one of the, the clear things in the text. The text makes a point of saying he brought David, all the despairing, the people who were desperate, and those who had nowhere else to turn in the face of a godless regime that is now turned evil. Those who are in debt, debt isn't a modern invention. These people had mortgaged their entire lives and their fields and their land and their future in service to the kingdom, which now lay in shambles. Why? Because of this pointless pursuit of David. And the disgruntled, the cranky, terminally cranky, 
the church is full of these people, right? Nothing ever changes. Listen, if you're discontent in a representative democracy, what do you do? Well, you vote that guy out. You just wait and you vote that dude out. But if, if you have discontent in your heart toward your regime in 1000 BC, in 1100 BC, when your king has been appointed by God and can only be deposed by God, you have very few options. And so the people somehow instinctively, 400 people come to David and they somehow instinctively know that David is God's chosen man, just like the king of Achish, the king of Philistia. They just know that he's the next king. It's gotten around. Word has gotten around. And so I think our principle that we draw from this today is that a godly and effective leader can shepherd the overlooked and the marginalized into a great team. A godly and effective leader can shepherd the disenfranchised, the marginalized, and the overlooked, the broken, into a great team, a great team, but he can only do so if he sees their potential. David has to learn to see what God sees in these people. David must lead this ragtag, motley crew of broken people to ultimate victory as they become all that God intends for them to be. In fact, many of them if you read the next book, you'll find uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 23 that many of them become feared, battle-hardened warriors. They're called David's mighty men. But today, nobody is calling them David's mighty men. That's not how they identify. Under David's shrewd, faithful, and courageous leadership, they will grow into a company of warriors, the company of warriors that they need to become. But today they are anxious, they are bankrupt, and they're malcontents. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 4 tells us this in very poetic, beautiful language. It tells us, uh, one who watches the wind will not sow into the field, and the one who looks at the clouds incessantly incurably, will never reap. What is Solomon telling us? Solomon is telling us that if we wait for perfect conditions before we plant the seed, before we get to work, if we wait for all the resources we need to come in before taking a risk, if we procrastinate and demand all events and circumstances align perfectly before moving forward, folks, we will never accomplish anything for God. That's what he's telling us. We will never reap the harvest that God has for us. We are called to shepherd hurting, broken, and sinful people. Welcome to the club. David has to work with the people that God has sovereignly brought him. God sovereignly brings him people, and he is ministering now, working now in conditions that are not ideal for sure. And this is truly a test of his leadership. What begins as a gathering of distressed and discontented individuals rallying around David evolves into a makeshift army of 400 men who do a lot of great for God's kingdom. Listen, take note of this. Before David can lead Israel's armies as king, he must prove faithful that he can lead the island of misfit toys. He has to. He has to prove that he can lead whoever God brings him, right? What's our application today? Well, a dire situation may require us to change our perspective. It may require us to change our perspective. Sometimes we have to change our mindset. If you just stop and think for a second what the word mindset means, it means a mind that is set. And sometimes we need a mind that is reset. 
Sometimes we just need to reset our thinking. And we need to look at the situation and the resources and the people and the things that God has brought us to do God's work a little bit differently. And maybe that grumpy husband or that rebellious child or that impossible manager or supervisor at your job, at your workspace. And maybe what seems like a misfit for you, what seems like misery is actually God's way of preparing, refining, and shaping you so that you will be ready for the responsibility that He has for you someday. Before David's ship comes in, he must first learn to become its captain, and he must first learn to lead well in the place where God has planted him. He must learn that patience and faithfulness always precede the crown. Faithfulness and patience always precede the crown. Now, uh, this just is the Christian faith, right? This, this is the Christian life, actually. This principle is right here in this text. Think of Jesus, who had to suffer greatly, greater than all of us will ever know, definitely greater than all of us will ever experience. But Jesus, who had to suffer greatly before His glorious ascension to David's throne. He tells the disciples this in Luke 24, 46, after he has risen from the dead, he has to meet them on the road to Emmaus. He has to smuggle himself into their little small group. They don't even know it's him, and he has to argue with them. He says, uh, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? That is to say, before the Messiah enters his glory, wasn't it necessary for him to suffer greatly? Isn't that what the Scripture teaches us? That's, that's what 1 Samuel 22 teaches us. That principle, Jesus cast the mold for the Christian life. And the author of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer, the author of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. How did Jesus enter his glory? He was made perfect. Doesn't mean personally perfect. It doesn't mean perfect in terms of his morality or his spirituality. No, it means perfecting his purpose. Jesus had to finish the work and make it perfect, the work that God had called him to do, which was to die on the cross for our sins and to rise on the third day victorious over sin, death, and hell for you. And until he did that, he wasn't made perfect. And when he was made perfect, God greatly exalted him to the right hand of his throne, where he now sits on David's throne, ruling the nations, ruling over the world. You say, well, I mean, that's just Jesus, right? <laughs> no. It's you too. It's me too. Jesus sets the pattern for cruciform Living, you've heard me say that word before. If you haven't, just write that word down. Cruciform living. What is cruciform living? It is a life formed in the image of Jesus. It is a life that is formed or patterned after His suffering on a cross. And what is His suffering on a cross? It's an act of sacrificial love for you and me. It's an act of sacrificial love, the greatest act of sacrificial love that the human race has ever known. And God has called our Christian lives to be formed into the image of the cross for each other. And that's what we mean by cruciform living. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing uh, with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. 
What's our perspective? Regardless of what goes down, the Christian has the unspoilable, untarnishable hope that our present misery, the imperfect conditions in which we find ourselves will be swallowed up in victory in the resurrection. And the stuff of life is not even worth comparing to that. That's what Paul says. There's no comparison. But someone will say, well, that's fine for eternity, but we're not in eternity. What about now? I need some help right now, some consolation in the here and now, not just the hereafter. But this hope of resurrection glory, of having everything in our lives swallowed up in the victory of resurrection, that is our present consolation. Knowing that is a big part of our present consolation. The consolation delivered to us in the midst of our angst, our fears, and our losses. Paul and the apostles simply assume that believers will join in Christ's sufferings in their lives, that we will follow the Master in carrying our cross, taking up our cross and following Jesus. But our present comfort is also in the midst of our heartache. We cannot avoid this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.7. He says to the Corinthians that our hope for you is firm. I mean, my hope for you is unshakable because we know that you share in our sufferings so you will also share in our comfort. Notice the correlation. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the comfort without the conflict. You can't have his restorative justice and healing unless you first face the fire. This is the Christian life. Peter likewise tells us in 1 Peter 4.13, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Do you think of yourself as a person who participates, who has the honor of sharing in Jesus' sufferings so that you may also rejoice with, the, with great joy when his glory is revealed? So your capacity to rejoice with great glory when his glory is revealed at the resurrection is proportional, is directly proportional to your suffering, to how you face suffering in this life, and your capacity to take on those burdens and pick up your cross and carry it and follow Jesus. Listen, I know this, this is a super exciting message, isn't it? Doesn't this just get you pumped for the Christian life to walk out the door But it is encouraging because the the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The difference is the unrighteous have no expectation of hope. The unrighteous have no expectation of receiving Christ's comfort in the here and now. Lastly, Peter tells us in in 1 Peter 5.10, he says, the God of all grace. Who is he? He's the God of all grace. Not a little grace, all of it. Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is your calling. at resurrection to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, he won't send an angel, he won't send a pastor, he himself by the Holy Spirit is going to restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while. Is there anyone here who needs God's restorative grace today? If you don't, I suppose I don't have a message for you today. If you're good and your life is good, good for you. But the rest of us need this. Anyone with shaky faith today? Anyone who walked in needing to be rooted and grounded and established in faith today? Anyone made weak through sorrow who needs strength and support? 
Well, if so, you're in the right place because what Peter says is that's what the God of all grace supplies us. That's what he gives us. And all of this, the restoration, the establishing, the strength, the support would be quite unnecessary for a person who has already arrived. I highly suspect that no one in this room has already arrived. I certainly have not. Paul didn't think he had. So it would be very easy for David to misinterpret his circumstances. It would be very easy for David to think that he's somehow under God's punishment. Have you ever thought this? I've heard people say this. Like I have a good friend who says this to me all the time. Every time some calamity or suffering or something comes into his life, he's like, man, man, God is punishing me for something. It's like, no, maybe God is just refining your character. Maybe God is just calling you to suck it up, buttercup. And to learn what you got to learn and to grow in grace. And also to bring you a comfort that you could not otherwise know. You could not otherwise know it. Perhaps today you need to change your perspective and begin to think that the place where you are right now is an opportunity, actually, for God to perfect your faith, which is very important to God. As you anticipate sharing in His future glory and receiving the comfort and restorative grace in the here and now as you anticipate future resurrection, I I genuinely do hope that you are excited about the prospects of that. Now, the second scene here is an unflinching obedience to God's Word. It's a scene, very brief, but it's a scene of unflinching obedience to God's Word which characterizes the life of David. I love this. It says, Then the prophet Gad of Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Leave and return to, this, to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Several very, very significant things here. Okay, this sentence just strikes me. It's like a neon bulb going off in the text. Why? Because I've read through the story and I know this characterizes David's life. What characterizes David's life is his knee-jerk sort of reflexive submission to God's Word. But as I read this text, I think, first of all, who is this prophet? Who is this guy? It's not Samuel. It's not Nathan. We don't really know who he is, but David seems to know. David seems to recognize how, does, how in the world does David know that he is a legitimate prophet of God with a legitimate word from the Lord? So how does he know that, and how is he able to discern so quickly that this is God's Word, this is God's will, I should follow this? So we observe in the text today that as Saul intensifies his pursuit, David seeks guidance from the prophet Gad, leading him to the forest of Heret. And and so we don't know, archaeologists, historians do not know where Heret is today in modern Israel, but the text tells us it's where? In Judah, which is in what direction? Saul's direction. (laughs) Right? So why doesn't he tell him? Listen, if you, if you want to save yourself, go north to Galilee. Oh, it's way better in Galilee. If you've ever been there, north of Galilee where the, where the water just explodes out of the ground, the headwaters of, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee is just beautiful. It's amazing and it's very lush. There are a lot of cool places there, a lot of places to hide. It's a great place. So why not go there? That's much better. Or why not go to the coast? If you've ever been to the coast of Israel, you know it is paradise. Why not go there? Lots of resources, the beach. You could chill on the beach while you write your songs, right? But he doesn't tell him that. He tells him, go in the direction of your tormentor. (laughs) Actually, lean into your antagonist. Go that way. Go, Go toward him. 
this strikes me in the text. I don't know why he would tell him that. And so while Saul is killing off the prophets and the priests who can remind him of the covenant and his responsibility as king, David is listening to prophets. In the next chapter, David will go to the priests and he will inquire of God through the priestly ephod. Throughout David's life, David listens to God's word when God's word is spoken into his life. And he just ha- seems to have this discernment that it is God's word. And he, he has this just automatic, reflexive way of just submitting and surrendering to God's word. I, I find that very interesting, a very interesting characteristic. And so I think the principle here is that David knows that God's word is his lifeline in times of uncertainty. David knows that God's word is his lifeline in tough times, in times of uncertainty. God's truth is the ground of our hope and faith. God's precepts are also the foundation on which the house must be built. God's commands constitute our moral obligations to each other and to him. God's word is our lifeline in in this present darkness. Amen? Amen? And David knows this. And what David has learned to do is to discern the voice of the Lord. Our application, I think the application for us today is that we must seek God's guidance in desperate times, even when it seems counterintuitive. (laughs) Like, even when it seems like the thing that God is telling you to do is running against the grain of the culture. It's running maybe even against your rationale. Maybe it seems unreasonable or illogical. And so if you're uneasy and you don't know why, seeking divine guidance is crucial. How do we, res- how do we approach God in our moments of need? And, and are we willing to listen to His direction when it is given? Just think of how often in the Bible, this is not all the time, it's not all the time, but very often, I bet this afternoon you could think of 10 examples in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, of God commanding people in the Bible to do something that seems counter to a reasonable action that seems counterintuitive, right? Counter to our normal intuition, going against the status quo or taking risks that seem to not make sense, doing something that doesn't seem humanly possible. Think of of, uh, Peter walking on the water. Should a human being be be getting out of a, a windswept boat to walk on a lake in the middle of a storm? Well, if God hasn't called that person to do that, then the answer is, oh no, you should not. Definitely. But if Christ commands that man to do it, it is the only reasonable action. It's the only logical thing to do. It becomes your your obligation now to follow God's commands, even when it seems like that's crazy. But what about Paul? Should Paul be preaching the gospel of Jesus in the Roman world? Throughout their cities where there is already a gospel of Caesar, you could walk along the paths on your way to Philippi and and see these large stone placards that talk about Caesar's gospel of peace, Caesar's titles, what are they? King and Lord and Savior. Should you be going into a city? Is it reasonable to ask someone to go into a city and teach that actually know a dead and risen rabbi from nowhere, Nazareth, he's the true king, lord, and savior of the world. What are Greco-Romans going to think about you? First of all, they're just going to think you're mad that psychologically they cannot believe your crazy gospel. 
But this is precisely what God has told Paul and the apostles to do. Go in that world and subvert a false gospel about a false king and a false peace. Now, how many times does God command someone to go in the very direction that nothing on earth would ever be able to convince them to do unless God had called them to do it? And often God calls me to do something I don't expect to do. And sometimes, and most of the time, I would say actually that he calls me to do the thing that he expects me to do, that I do expect to do. Things that are in my wheelhouse, things for which he has gifted me and enabled me to do. But sometimes God calls me to do the unexpected, the very thing I would have thought would be foolish or very uncomfortable at least and doesn't seem to make sense right now. So it takes faith to get in the boat. Notice the first command that Jesus gives Peter. Going back to that story. Jesus says, uh, okay, guys, get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake. In Mark's gospel, that's a command. That's in the voice of a command. So what's the first command they have to obey? Get in the boat. And this is something they do every day. This is what they're used to doing. So it takes faith to do the thing that you're used to doing, and it takes faith to get out of the boat in the middle of a storm. Both of those things take faith. And this is just where David lives right now. This is where he lives now, how do we know when God is calling us? How do we discern the voice of God? How do we do so readily and quickly? Have you ever thought how, how missionaries know where to go? I mean, there are so many countries in which they can serve. And if you talk to missionaries, they agonize over their choices. You know, maybe I should go to Asia. Maybe I shouldn't. And they agonize over this. But what do those missionaries do? They pray and they seek the Lord, and they seek wise counsel, and they study, and they do their research, and they wait for the Lord from some prompting from the Lord. How do they know this? How do they not just end up completely in the wrong territory for their lives? It's because they've become able to discern God's voice, to discern His leading and His guidance and His calling. And David can do this too. David knows how to distinguish between a false prophet and a true prophet, to discern God's will in areas where the Bible is silent. We must familiarize ourselves deeply with His revealed truths in matters where He has already spoken. So understand, David is a man of the Word. This is how he knows, because he is a student of God's Word, what God has already said. Look at Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, this is your true worship. This is genuine worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's the external offering, and there's the internal heart, the renewing of our minds so that you may be able to discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect, the will of God. What is he saying? How, do, does anyone in here want to know what the will of God is? Do you want to know? Do you, know, do you want to know God's direction? Do you know, want to know what, what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will might be? Then we must offer ourselves wholly to him as a living sacrifice and renew our minds daily in this book in His Word, because as we become good students of God in His Word, then He can speak to us in places where His Word doesn't specify. There's no chapter and verse telling David to go back to Judah. He has to hear God's leading through the prophet. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as a theologically ignorant prophet. <laughs> 
There isn't. Now, I've met a lot of them, but they're false prophets. Years ago, we had a very prominent person in our church in Spokane, and she would very often uh, come up to one of the uh, associate pastors there, and she would just offer us a, a word of encouragement. It was great. It was, her admonishment was good. But ever so often, she would give us like a prophet, a prophecy. She would say, I have a word from the Lord for you. And I, and I would always go, uh-oh. And I told her one day, she came and she brought me some vision in, and she didn't have the interpretation of it, and she said, she said, you need to pray about what the interpretation is. I said, okay, thank you, Rachel. Uh, not our wonderful Rachel, but this Rachel. Um, I said, okay, thank you. I, and this is what I said. I'm going to test that, and I'm going to see if that's of the Spirit of God. Why? Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, test prophecy. Make sure it's from God. And then John tells us in his letter, test all the spirits because not every spirit that comes to you is of God, <laughs> right? Is from God. So I told her that and she was immediately off-put. She was like, what? What are you going to do? She wanted to come in next week and talk to me about it and ask me why I would tell her that. And so I took her to the scriptures, and I read her those scriptures. She said, you know, in 25 years in the church, no one's ever told me that. And I said, Rachel, this is 101. Right? If you're going to claim to be a prophetess, this is profiting, prophesying 101, right? So then I encouraged her to get into my Foundations of the Christian Life class, and the first Part of that class was on how to study the Bible for all it's worth. And the first two principles I teach people in that class is the principle of authorial intent, which means you interpret the Bible according to the author's intended meaning. What did he intend for his audience? That's critical. That's number one. And two, you do that through the principle of context. What is in this chapter? What is in this book? What is in the culture that would help you to understand what this text is meaning in its context? And she said, man, after the class, she said, no one ever told me that. No one has ever taught me that. And I said, well, hey, praise God, now you know. <laughs> but I want to be clear, there is no such thing as a biblically illiterate prophet or prophetess, and I am struck by David's insti instinct to simply obey God's word when he hears it. But somehow he knows it's God's word, and the reason he knows it's God's word is because he's been in God's word. He knows when God is speaking, when God is leading, and when God is guiding because he's spent time in the word. Next summer, we're doing a series called The Gospel Through the Psalms. It's going to be fun. And I've been studying through the Psalms, and I've been trying to find the gospel in the Psalms, which is not hard to find at all. But let me tell you what, dis, what, what surprised me the most is that as I'm reading David's Psalms and I'm finding the gospel in the Psalms, there's a lot of Moses in the Psalms. I'm like, wow, how does he know that passage from Deuteronomy? Or I know, that's, that's Leviticus 16 right there. How does he know that? It's because David is a man of the word. David has consumed his heart and his mind with the word. And so when a prophet like Gad comes up to him and says, hey, this is the word of the Lord, he's like, yeah, yeah, I, that sounds like God. That sounds like truth. And that's how we do it. And that's what God has called us to do as well. So if we haven't renewed our minds in God's revealed word, day by day, we are in no position to discern God's will or leading or guidance in places where he hasn't revealed, in the Bible. So let's recap, and I'm going to call the worship team to come up. We're going to close out our service with a time of singing and prayer. Let me ask you a question. 
Is it time for you to see your situation as an opportunity for God to refine and restore and renew your spirit in the midst of your challenges? Do your less than ideal circumstances require a change of perspective as to what God is doing in your life right now? And maybe God has brought you some resources or some people from the island of misfit toys and you don't know why. You have these people at your job or in your neighborhood or in your family, but God expects faithfulness of you in little things before he promotes you to much. Are you struggling to discern God's will today, his guidance, his leadership? But if you really took stock, if you really did the inventory on what you spend your mental energy on, how much time are you completely uh, permeating your thinking with the word of God so that the fabric of your thoughts becomes scriptural? How many of us do that? I'm convicted by this because I don't think I do that often. Might God be pursuing you and nudging you to take a risk to go in the direction of your antagonist or to go in the direction that seems counter to reason right now? It doesn't make sense. Why would God want me to do that? Will you think about those things as we, as we pray and as we sing this song? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful this morning that you have promised to be with us and gather in our midst. And Lord, would you please open our hearts to the truth of the text this morning as we follow David's example. In faith and in courage and in life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thank you.